Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex, of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know wherever you get your podcasts. You are looking at a live view of the Falcon Heavy. In 2018, Elon Musk's company, SpaceX, launched a rocket from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida under blue skies streaked with clouds. A giant white rocket attached to two smaller white boosters stood perched on the launch pad. All systems are go for launch. A crowd assembled at Mission Control, giddy and loud. This was the company's splashiest launch yet, of its biggest rocket, built for a Mars-crossing orbit. Stacked inside the fairing is Elon's cherry-red Tesla Roadster. Then there was the payload, described by SpaceX in its live broadcast. And inside of it, a passenger. His name is Starman, but don't worry, he's not human. There was also an ark, a sort of Noah's Ark of an archive, on a space-proof quartz compact disc. On the arc that's being launched today, the Foundation has stored Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi series, The Foundation Trilogy. One objective of this test flight was to put a Tesla Roadster carrying the works of Isaac Asimov into orbit for a billion years. Three, two, one. Welcome to the Evening Rocket. I'm Jill Lepore. I'm a professor at Harvard. I'm a U.S. political historian. And for a long time, I've been studying the relationship between technological and political change. I'm fascinated by visions of the future in political discourse, in literature, in science fiction, and even comic books. This series, I'm exploring a new kind of capitalism. Call it Muskism. Extravagant, extreme capitalism extraterrestrial capitalism, where stock prices can be driven by dreams and fantasies that come from science fiction. Last episode, 
I looked at Musk's early life in South Africa, growing up reading The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He ended up in Silicon Valley in the 1990s, founding a company called X.com that merged with PayPal. eBay bought PayPal for $1.5 billion. Musk used that money to start SpaceX. He also started talking about very big plans for the future of humanity. When I was in university, I thought about what would most affect the future of the world. And the three areas that I came up with were the internet, sustainable energy, and making life multiplanetary. Musk began to argue that his plan was to save the human race, including by going to Mars. But why? Future of humanity questions used to belong to religion and philosophy. Under Muskism, they belong to engineering and entrepreneurship. How did that happen? This episode of The Evening Rocket is called Planet B. Strap in and head to Mars. A few years back, Musk, strutting in a sharp suit in front of an audience at a SpaceX event, talked about the ship he'd like to take there. I think like maybe the name of the first ship that goes to Mars, my current favorite is Heart of Gold from the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I like the fact that it's driven by infinite improbability. I think our ship is also <laughs> extremely improbable. One pretty useful way of understanding Musk's vision for SpaceX is that it's Douglas Adams fan fiction. Or you could make a fair argument that SpaceX's inspiration comes from the Foundation series. Title, Foundation. Author, Isaac Asimov. Encyclopedia Galactica, 116th edition. This Encyclopedia Galactica runs through all the Foundation series. And if that sounds familiar, that's because The Hitchhiker's Guide is a lampoon of it. The Hitchhiker's Guide has already supplanted the great Encyclopedia Galactica as the standard repository of all knowledge and wisdom in two important ways. First, it is slightly cheaper. And second, it has the words, don't panic, inscribed in large, friendly letters on the cover. That Tesla Roadster that Musk sent up into space had a copy of Asimov inside, And it also had Don't Panic on its dashboard. Asimov's Foundation series revolves around a scholar named Harry Selden. Born the 11,988th year of the Galactic Era. Died 12,069. Birthplace, Helicon, Arcturus Sector. Harry Selden is responsible for the future of humanity. His plan? Engineers will save us. Selden knows that the Galactic Empire will soon collapse, after which the galaxy will endure a dark age. He's got a plan to hide away two sets of experts, one at each end of the galaxy, the two foundations, to store the knowledge of civilization. Elon Musk read this story as a kid, and later said that the lesson he drew from it was that you should try to take the set of actions that are likely to prolong civilization, minimize the probability of a dark age, and reduce the length of a dark age if there is one. Anxiety about the imminent end of civilization, existential catastrophism, is an essential feature of Muskism. Humanity, in this understanding of the world, is always at risk of extinction. Entrepreneurs and engineers are trying to save us all. I got to wondering where this idea came from. When did people begin worrying 
about human extinction? That's a good question. So it depends on what you mean by worrying. That's Thomas Moynihan, author of the 2020 book, X-Risk, How Humanity Discovered Its Own Extinction. Moynihan has a doctorate from Oxford, where he's been affiliated with something called the Future of Humanity Institute. I do need to note here that Musk is a donor to that institute. I called up Moynihan to ask him about the history of the panic, don't panic, about human extinction, which is different from a religious worry about the coming apocalypse. The apocalypse secures a sense of an ending, whereas extinction anticipates the ending of sense. According to Moynihan, people started worrying about human extinction sometime in the 18th century, during the Enlightenment, partly because scientists studying fossils had begun to observe and to document the extinction of other species, like dinosaurs. This fascinated romantic poets. Byron himself refers to using steam engines to deflect incoming asteroids and stop them from wiping out humanity. Mary Shelley, a decade after she wrote Frankenstein, wrote The Last Man, the first novel in English that imagines human extinction by way of a global pandemic. By the end of the 19th century, you get science fiction that imagines a risk coming from other planets. Something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Martians came to Earth in H.G. Wells' 1898 novel, War of the Worlds. But as Moynihan points out, Wells also thought of other planets as a way to avoid human extinction. Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. At the end of War of the Worlds, he mentions that humanity might be able to migrate to Venus in the long term, and that would somehow prolong the lifespan of civilization. But of course, early science fiction emerged during an era of imperialism. After all, as Cecil Rhodes himself said, I would annex the planets if I could. H.G. Wells wasn't actually promoting a colony on Venus. He was opposing British colonies on Earth. He began War of the Worlds by talking about British colonial expansion into Tasmania, writing that the Tasmanians, in spite of their human likeness, were entirely swept out of existence in a war of extermination waged by European immigrants in the space of 50 years. Are we such apostles of mercy as to complain if the Martians warred in the same spirit? The line from Wells to Musk is a line of rupture. To recycle Age of Imperialism science fiction absent the criticism of imperialism is to erase history. Moynihan argues that in the middle decades of the 20th century, fears of human extinction got ratcheted up after Hiroshima and during the Cold War with its concern about nuclear Armageddon. The danger was an alien invasion. The danger was us. By the 1980s, people concerned about what's come to be called existential risk, especially people fighting for arms control, came up with some fancy calculations to try to win the argument. We shouldn't be thinking about human extinction as just the death of the 7 billion people that are currently alive. We need to think about it more as the foreclosure of all the future generations of people that could have been, who could have had worthwhile lives. This idea really took off. This, to me, strange calculation by which our lives, the lives of everyone here on Earth, just don't amount to much compared to the lives of all the future beings who won't live if we don't establish colonies on other planets. 
Then, in the 1990s, Moynihan says, a lot of tech people involved in early message boards came together to really panic about a long list of existential risks. Asteroid or comet impacts, supervolcanic eruptions, stellar explosions, nuclear war, climate degradation. And then one that also gets a lot of attention as well is artificial intelligence. At the time this list was growing on tech message boards, Elon Musk was in college and then in Silicon Valley, developing his sense of mission. Earlier this year, Bernie Sanders tweeted, We are in a moment in history where two guys, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, own more wealth than the bottom 40% of people in this country. Musk tweeted back, I am accumulating resources to help make life interplanetary and extend the light of consciousness to the stars. Not everyone thinks Musk and Bezos are heroically saving humanity from extinction. My question is, why do they think they're doing that? Jeff Bezos was born in New Mexico in 1964. Both he and Elon Musk grew up on stories about the Apollo 11 moon landing. The U.S. ended its moon program in 1972, Bezos, a Star Trek fan, always wanted to go back to the moon. In 1982, at his high school graduation, he gave a speech about it. Space, the final frontier, he said. Meet me there. This fall, 2021, Bezos made one of his science fiction childhood dreams come true. He sent William Shatner, Captain Kirk, up in one of his rockets. In college at Princeton, Bezos was president of the Space Exploration Society. Musk! tells a story about how, as a kid, he went to the NASA website to look up the schedule for going to Mars. In 1964, NASA had launched the Mariner 4 probe, the first spacecraft to fly by Mars. The great question is, what will Mariner reveal? Of course, the possibility of life on Mars has been debated for many years. Faint lines seen on the surface have uh, led to the idea that these were canals dug by the Martians, but I don't think anybody goes that far these days. The probe sent back 21 photographs, unveiled at the White House, before Lyndon Johnson. But the photographs revealed a barren, dusty wasteland, all but crushing any hope, as Johnson said, that there was life on Mars. It may be, it may just be, that life as we know it, with its humanity, is more unique than many have thought. That view of Mars started to change in the 1990s, which marked a convergence. Tech types had become consumed with the possibility of human extinction. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk were starting to make millions, even billions of dollars. And writers and scientists had begun to imagine ways Mars could be made habitable. The science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson published the Mars Trilogy, in which scientists from Earth have terraformed Mars. And in 1998, an aerospace engineer named Robert Zubrin published a book called The Case for Mars. There's three reasons why Mars should be the goal of our space program. And in short, it's because Mars is where the science is, it's where the challenge is, and it's where the future is. Bezos founded his space company, Blue Origin, in the year 2000. Musk started SpaceX two years later. In the two decades since, despite painful setbacks, SpaceX has been an engineering wonder, a juggernaut, revitalizing space exploration. But even as the richest men on this planet were thinking about traveling to other planets, more and more Earthlings were worried about life here on Earth. 
Five million students around the world took to the streets in a climate strike last Friday. Students flooded the streets with a clear message. There is no planet B. While Musk and Bezos were building rockets, there is no planet B became the motto of the environmental movement. A way for people to say that space exploration not only fails to address the risk of human extinction, but is instead part of the problem. Even Kim Stanley Robinson took this line. I still speak positively about us going to Mars and even perhaps someday terraforming Mars, but it's a project for like the year 3000 AD. What I I feel I have to say now is to uh, remind people there is no planet B. It's not simple. It's not fast. It isn't going to happen anytime soon. And so we can't be thinking that Earth is disposable. Elon Musk began to change the way he talked about going to Mars. Have we screwed it up so badly here on this planet that our only hope is to build a new civilization out there? No, not at all. I, actually, I'm quite, I'm quite optimistic about the future of humanity on Earth. So what is the benefit to humanity then to inhabit Mars? Well, I think if you consider two paths, one where we're forever confined to Earth and the other where we are space-franked civilization uh, out exploring the stars, I think the latter is far more exciting. SpaceX is about taking science fiction stories and turning them into fact. But what if SpaceX is actually fulfilling the vision of dystopian science fiction by way of Muskism, not only as extraterrestrial capitalism, but as a new political order? Isaac Asimov's Foundation series first appeared as a book in 1951. But a more prophetic science fiction story about money and politics and the future of humanity came out in 1952. The Space Merchants. Frederick Poles and C.M. Kornbluth's modern classic about the future when the wizards of high-pressure salesmanship take over. It's the story of Mitchell Courtney, a copysmith, star class with Fowler Shock and Associates, the biggest and greatest advertising firm of the future, and a tale of a rocket ride to Venus. The Space Merchants is dystopian science fiction, later made into a radio drama. The story opens on a blighted, depleted, overcrowded Earth at a board meeting of an advertising agency called Fowler Schocken Associates. Gentlemen, I am proud and I am humble when I say it's successful. The mining ventures are bringing the people here on Earth. Many of the metals our forefathers exhausted long ago. The colonists seem quite untouched by the Kansi revolutionists. Only six instances of Kansi sabotage in the past week. On this desperate, dying Earth, Fowler Schocken is worried about consies, conservationists, or what we'd call environmentalists. Gentlemen, on my trip back from the moon, I began to wonder, are we getting soft? But now I've decided Fowler Schocken Associates is not soft, that it's ready to meet a challenge greater than our development of the moon, the greatest challenge the world of advertising and promotion has ever met, the colonizing of Venus. The Space Merchants wasn't the first version of this dystopian vision. In a story from 1901 with the excellent title, To Mars with Tesla, that is, with Nikola Tesla, a guy advertising a rocket trip to Mars turns out to be a con man. This year, SpaceX, in Fowler Schocken fashion, announced that it has organized the first fully private, entirely for-profit mission, carrying five men, paying $55 million each on an eight-day flight. The Washington Post has reported that SpaceX might be involved in a project to build the first hotel in space. 
blast back to the past, to the U.S. presidential election year of 2012. During that year's contest for the Republican nomination, moderates like Mitt Romney said a plan to go to the moon was crazy. I spent 25 years in business. If I had a business executive come to me and say they wanted to spend a few hundred billion dollars to put a colony on the moon, I'd say you're fired. Uh, the, the, the idea that corporate America wants to go off to the moon and build a colony there, it, it may be a big idea, but it's not a good idea. But far-right Republicans like Newt Gingrich endorsed this idea. But I'll tell you, I do not want to be the country that, having gotten to the moon first, turned around and said, it doesn't really matter. Let the Chinese dominate space. What do we care? I think Okay, now blast ahead to the U.S. presidential election of 2016, when Newt Gingrich was one of Donald Trump's closest advisors. And in the weeks between Trump's election and his inauguration, both Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos went to visit him in Trump Tower. In 2017, after Trump took office, people started talking about moon fever. As one commentator put it, Trump wanted to make the moon American again. Americans, though, weren't much behind this project. A poll found that 63% of Americans wanted NASA to focus instead on climate research. Only 13% favored another trip to the moon. But this didn't stop Trump. Thank you very much, Vice President Pence, for helping. Where's our Vice President? Great job. To restore American leadership in space. Trump directed NASA to alter its schedule and make a priority of sending Americans to the moon. Our journey into space will not only make us stronger and more prosperous, but will unite us behind grand ambitions and bring us all closer together. Wouldn't that be nice? Can you believe that space is going to do that? At the end of 2017 at the White House, Trump made a formal announcement of a new destination. This time, we will not only plant our flag and leave our footprint, we will establish a foundation for an eventual mission to Mars and perhaps someday to many worlds beyond. It wasn't only about science, he said. Space has so much to do with so many other applications, including a military application. What he meant by that became clear a year and a half later. We're gathered here in the Rose Garden to establish the United States Space Command. It's a big deal. Spacecom will soon be followed, very importantly, by the establishment of the United States Space Force as the sixth branch of the United States Armed Forces. Space isn't so much the next frontier as the next battleground. And Elon Musk and his dream of a multi-planetary civilization? Well, over a billion dollars of SpaceX's funding comes from the U.S. Department of Defense. Some of that relates to Space Force. In some ways, SpaceX and Space Force are two sides of the same Bitcoin. In 2020, SpaceX was awarded several many million dollar contracts with the U.S. military, including a $149 million contract to develop missile tracking satellites, a major contract to launch new rockets for Space Force, and another to develop a rocket capable of delivering weapons anywhere around the world. Under the Biden administration, the Pentagon is expected to continue to work closely with SpaceX. We approached SpaceX for a response, but at the time of this recording, we hadn't received a reply. There is a politics of space. Often, it looks less like the politics of Star Trek, a JFK-style new frontier of exciting science and good government, 
Then like the politics of Star Wars, of swaggering generals and imperial Death Stars. There's also something of a party politics of space. And in the U.S., it's been generally Republican and conservative. In the Senate, the race to space has been most fiercely endorsed by the Texas senator and presidential aspirant Ted Cruz. No longer is space just an uninhabited void or a scientific novelty. That's Cruz in 2019, chairing a hearing on the emerging space environment. Cruz grew up reading the science fiction of Robert Heinlein, a noted libertarian and author of The Man Who Sold the Moon. Heinlein's estate awards the Heinlein Prize for Space Commercialization. Both Musk and Bezos have won it. Cruz may win it one day soon. By some estimates, the space sector will grow to nearly $3 trillion in value in the next three decades alone. It is also my belief that the world's first trillionaire will be made in space. One purpose of Space Force is to protect the space merchants. Bernie Sanders wasn't the only person on the left to notice the ironies here, the staggering inequalities. In 2019, Trevor Noah, the mixed-race South African who hosts The Daily Show on Comedy Central in the U.S., pictured Elon Musk bringing colonists to Mars. You gotta admit, it would have been kind of funny if Elon Musk waited until they landed on Mars to be like, oh, I forgot to mention, you are my space slaves now! Get to work building my base! Because then you realize all those rich white people would be slaving away on the Martian fields. They'd be singing their old Caucasian spirituals. Trevor Noah tied race to space. But they got tied together again in 2020, after George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis on May 25th, a Monday. Protests began in Minneapolis that night. By Wednesday, they'd begun to spread across the country. On Thursday, the governor of Minnesota called in the National Guard. On Friday, Trump delivered an ultimatum, tweeting, When the looting starts, the shooting starts. That night, as protesters gathered near the White House, the Secret Service rushed the president to an underground bunker. The next day, May 30th, 2020, Trump boarded Air Force One. But where to? And now it's my high honor and distinct privilege to introduce to you the man whose vision and relentless leadership brought us to this historic day, the 45th president of the United States of America, President Donald Trump. Trump hadn't flown to Minneapolis to talk to protesters. He'd flown to Florida, to the Kennedy Space Center, to watch the long-scheduled launch of SpaceX's first manned mission, the first time Four, a commercial space three, corporation two, carried people one, into space. Zero. Ignition. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA. Go SpaceX. Godspeed. Bottom It was a weird freak of timing, the George Floyd protests and SpaceX's triumphant launch. From the lakes of Minnesota. Well, thank you very much. Please, please. Big day is a big day. It was an unfortunate freak of timing. Trump took to the stage to his trademark walk-on music at the Space Center and started out talking about the protests. My administration will always stand against violence, mayhem, and disorder. It was a hard turn to get to the rocket, but Trump tied the two together. He said race sows division, space brings unity. Moments ago, as we witnessed the launch of Two great American astronauts into space. We were filled with the sense of pride and unity 
that brings us together as Americans. For Trump, SpaceX meant America first. Then he introduced an American entrepreneur. He's a little different than a lot of other people. He likes rockets. Elon Musk, congratulations. Congratulations, Elon. The engineering accomplishments are incredible. But what about the costs? What about the risks? Not the existential ones, but the ordinary ones. People have been trying to escape to planet B for a long time. That doesn't make it the right thing for planet A. Watching the SpaceX launch that day, all I could think about was a poem by Gil Scott Heron from 1970 about the Apollo mission. We have a poem here. It's called Whitey on the Moon. It was inspired by some whiteys on the moon. That day of Black Lives Matter protests around the world, I watched that SpaceX rocket rise. So beautiful, so thrilling. These verses ringing in my ears. A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bills, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. Next time on the Evening Rocket, Muskism here on Earth. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. The Evening Rocket was written and read by me, Jill Lepore. For the BBC, The Evening Rocket was produced by Viv Jones. Oliver Riskin-Cutts was the researcher. The editor was Hugh Levinson. The commissioning editor was Dan Clark. Iona Hammond was production coordinator. Mixing by Graham Putafoot and original music by Corntooth. For Pushkin, it was produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Jake Gorski, who also did the mix and sound design. Production support from Ben Natafafri. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Our operations team includes Daniela Lacan, Maya Koenig, and Carly Migliori. Thanks also to John Schnars, Jacob Weisberg, Maggie Taylor, Heather Fain, Nicole Moreno, and Eric Sandler. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Hey, it's Ben. Did you know you can listen to The Last Archive on Amazon Music? And you can stream your favorite albums and artists in the app, so you can do all of your listening in one place. Plus, Amazon Prime members get access to ad-free podcasts from other podcast networks, like Wondery and Amazon-exclusive shows. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app, or just ask your Alexa device to play The Last Archive on Amazon Music.